Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. In Scripture, it says that Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw God, and he saw Jesus standing next to his father, looking at him, which was confirmation that in this moment when Stephen is dying, he saw Jesus. And that was exactly what I needed to hear so that I could know that when whatever was happening to Molly, that she knew that he was with her. And that in an instant, from the moment she was alive to the moment she died, she was in the arms of Jesus. And and that's what I carried with me to help quiet the fears that would come up in my mind. She wasn't alone. He was with her in that moment, and she has been with him ever since that moment. Doxology Bible Church is proud to present EverStory, launching wherever you listen to podcasts on June 6th. EverStory is a weekly, seasonal podcast featuring Christ-centered stories of hope and transformation, told by people just like you. No chit-chat, just raw, powerful stories. Stories inspire us to connect with each other in real, tangible ways. With stories, we're able to glorify a God who relentlessly pursues us. Mark 16:15 tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Stories embody who we are as Christians. Without them, Paul's letters would have never been shared. Without stories, a person with Christ in their heart might never find the courage to bring the word to their neighbor. Without stories, the Great Commission never occurs. Check in with us often as we introduce stories about the way Jesus' radical love is moving in truly awesome ways. Find EverStory wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, follow Doxology Bible Church on Facebook or Instagram at Doxology Bible. Want to share your story or know someone who might? Send us an email to stories at doxology.church. Because everyone has a story. Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. It's good to see you. My name's Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're our guest this morning, I want to add to what Jim said and just tell you, we are so glad that you're here. Uh, This is the second week in a four-part series called Mission Next Door, where we've been asking that question. Uh, Which door is next? What we've said over the last couple of weeks, uh, and what we'll continue to say over the next couple of weeks, is all of us walk through doors every day. Uh, We walk through uh, doors in our home. We walk through doors in every room of our home. We walk through office doors. We walk through school doors. We walk through restaurant doors. We walk through the doors of the doctor's offices and the doors of other people's homes. We walk through hundreds of doors every single day. We began to ask this question last week. What kind of person are you and I going to be when we walk through the next door? 
We've been studying the book uh, of Luke, the last part of Luke chapter 10 together. And if you brought your Bible this morning, and I hope you brought your Bible. It's always so much better and more convenient if you've got your own Bible rather than just checking out the screens up there. Because if you decide you wanted to look at this passage later in the week, uh, it's easier to remember where it is on the page than to call us and have us send you a copy of the screen. So I hope you brought your Bible this morning and can follow along with us. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, the second part of Luke chapter 10 this morning. Uh, this has been a really exciting weekend for our church. Uh, we had uh, about 15 to 1,600 people who were here this Friday and Saturday and decided that through the door of their home, specifically with their spouse, they wanted to be people that loved the Lord their God with everything in them by loving their spouse uh, better showing love and respect to their spouse. And I uh, want to just echo again what Jim said. If you're not involved in community at McKinney and you hear us talk about that and you're interested in taking that step of doing life together with other people, we got a six-week study coming up that is a really good chance for you to test drive what it would look like, not only to take another step in your marriage, but to take a step into community with other people that can help sharpen you and help your marriage uh, be greater. And even if you already are in community at McKinney and you want to take that next step in your marriage, I hope so many of you will show up at that table afterwards and join one of those six-week low commitment as far as time frame, but high engagement, small groups over the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a really, really exciting thing. So I hope you'll do that as you leave today. But what we said last week is our home door is not the only door we walk through. It's a critical door. It's an essential door. It's where God starts when he talks about what it looks like to be a Christ-centered person. But it's not the only door that we walk through. And as we turned to Luke chapter 10 and started looking at the second half of Luke, we saw a man who stands in front of Jesus and repeats for Jesus what we've called the great commandment. And it's a fairly familiar time. The guy comes to Jesus and asks him a question. Says, Jesus, what does it look like to have eternal life? And Jesus turns the question back around on this man and says, well, what do you think the Bible says? And the guy says, well, he, this is not his first rodeo with Jesus. He's heard Jesus answer the question before. So he takes a stab at it, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says you've got it. He names two commands, two commands from the Old Testament that Jesus, not only here in Luke 10, but also in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, say these are the most important commands for people who want to follow Jesus. We started looking at those commands last week and looked at the first one that takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 where Moses stands in front of the people of Israel about to give them instructions for moving into the promised land, the land beyond the known for them, even though he knows he's not going to get to go. And he says to them, when you get ready to walk ahead, the most important thing that you can know is this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength. Moses looks at the people and he says, this should be the attitude of your heart. You should take it with you everywhere you go. This should be your identity. You serve one God and you love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. He says, you should etch it 
on the hearts of your children so that they are grooved into this idea for their whole life that there is one God and he should be loved with everything that's in us. When you walk by the road, when you try to fall asleep at night, the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning should be this idea that there's one God and we love him with everything that's in us. In fact, he went on to give us an image that we've used over the last couple of weeks. He says, it should be as if when people stare into your eyes, this command to love the Lord your God is written on your forehead. In fact, when you walk through doors, it should be as if above every door is written this command, the Lord your God is one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And what we said last week is that whatever door it is that we walk through, whether it's our office door or our home door or the door from our bedroom into the kitchen or the door to our laundry room or the door to our office or to our restaurant or the country club or the doctor's office, wherever it is we find ourselves, every day, every time, every door, every part of us should be on a mission to love the Lord our God. That's the mission for the next door. But if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you know that that's not where Jesus stopped. In fact, as Jesus reiterated what was the most important command, Jesus talked about it as if it was in stereo. You know how it is to listen to a song in stereo. If you just listen to it on one side, it feels incomplete. It's not nearly as substantial. It doesn't feel as full. And when Jesus gets ready to talk about what most important thing that we should do when we follow him, he gives us command in stereo. And if you're familiar with Jesus' life, you know the second part of that command. The first is everywhere, every day, every time, every door, every part of us should be on a mission to love God. But the second part is what we're going to focus on this morning as we look back at this story of a man who encounters Jesus. And we see the second most important command for men and women who want to follow after Jesus with everything that's in us. So look with me if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and read through 27. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke's writing and says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, he's walked with Jesus before. He's heard Jesus give this answer, and Jesus reveals for him later he's guessed right. But you also remember from us talking last week, Jesus Ask the man the question in order to get the guy to ask Jesus a question back. Jesus was hoping that the man would look at the command to love the Lord his God every day, every time, every door, with every part of him to love the Lord his God and he would cast himself at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, there is no way I can do that. I've already missed it. And to ask Jesus for another way, where Jesus could look at him and say, you know, God has provided another way, and the other way is standing right here in front of you. I'm going to offer myself as the payment for the fact that you could never keep all the rules. 
And if you'll trust in me, I'll give you everlasting life. That's how to inherit eternal life. You can never do it on your own. But the guy doesn't ask that question. He takes a different path that we'll see next week. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, every day, every time, every door, every part of us, is only the first side of the command. This morning we want to look at the second part, and it's a pretty simple command, isn't it? Just five words. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet it's a really fascinating command. It's a profound command, and although it's simple, what it calls for from every single one of us who really want to follow Jesus is staggering. So we look at it... uh, First, the first thing that we want to do is we want to start trying to define some terms. If we really want to be obedient to it, first we need to define some terms. Next week, this expert in the law is going to help us define the term neighbor. So we'll put that on the shelf and come back to the term neighbor next week. But before we even get to the term neighbor, before we can even define what our neighbor looks like, we need to answer a question about the first word, the word for love. Like Jim mentioned, so many of us were here this weekend learning just a little bit more about love and respect. We talk about love all of the time. It's in all of our vocabularies, and yet for most of us, we've never really stopped to think about a definition of love. Can I give you a definition of love that I think I can back up with the Bible? Definition of love, this way. Here's what I think the Bible means when it talks about love. Love is the sacrificial movement of one person toward the need of someone else. Love is the sacrificial movement of one person towards the need of someone else. This is the biblical idea of love. Let me show you a couple of passages. The first one's in 1 John 4, verse 10. John's writing and he says this, In this is love. Essentially, this is the definition of love, and we don't define it. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. John says, you want to know a definition for love, it's this. You couldn't ever keep the rules. You deserved death. You deserved to be separated from God for all eternity. That was your need. But you want to know what love is? God saw your need and he made a self-sacrificial move. He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, to be the payment, to be the satisfactory payment on God's behalf. That's what love is. It's a sacrificial movement of one person towards the needs of another. If you were here this weekend, you heard John 15, verses 12 and 13, where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this. He says, there is not a better illustration of love than this. You want to know the picture that's by the definition of love in the dictionary? It's this, greater love has no one than this. A man would lay down his life for his friends. You want to know what love is? It's a sacrificial movement of one person towards the needs of someone else. That's the love that Jesus means when he talks about loving our neighbor. It's the exact same concept, the exact same word. To make a sacrificial movement towards the needs of someone else. That's what love is. And what does that imply? What does it mean to love our neighbor in that way? Well, the first thing it means is that in calling us to love our neighbors, Jesus is not simply calling us to be nice. He's not just calling us to be friendly, good cube mates for the people at work. That's not what he means when he says love your neighbor. He's not just calling us to be good neighbors who 
allow people near us to borrow our weed eater or a cup of flour. Jesus isn't just calling us to be kind. He's calling us to a sacrificial movement towards the needs of someone else. And what does that imply about our neighbor? It implies that our neighbor has needs. In fact, I love what Philo of Alexandria says. He said it this way, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Isn't that true? Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And inherent in Jesus' statement to love your neighbor as yourself is an understanding that your neighbor has needs. Your neighbor is fighting a great battle. And Jesus charges all of us to make a sacrificial move towards meeting that need. Because they're fighting a great battle. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but people that have needs tend to be messy. I know I am. It's not easy. It's not convenient. It's not comfortable. What Jesus is calling us to is something that's not necessarily natural for us. He's calling us to make a sacrificial movement toward the need of somebody who is probably by definition messy, just like you are and just like I am. It takes sacrifice to move towards the need of somebody else. Do you notice something else about the command that Jesus gives to love our neighbor? What's the standard that Jesus gives in this simple five-word command? What's the standard for moving sacrificially towards the need of somebody else? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, isn't that interesting? You know that the Bible, from cover to cover, never, ever, ever gives any instruction about how to love yourself. Did you know that? It's almost as if the Bible just assumes we do love ourselves, And we do. Every single one of us comes pre-programmed with this innate desire, a powerful desire for self-preservation, for self-fulfillment. We all have a need for happiness. We have a need for food. We have a need for shelter. We have a need for companionship and safety and freedom. And we will do whatever it takes to get that. We innately love ourselves. We innately make whatever sacrifice is necessary to move towards meeting our own personal needs. And we don't have to learn that. It comes pre-programmed inside of us. Carrie and I have an eight-month-old child and on his very first night in the world, he came pre-programmed with needs and with a desire and ability to do whatever it took to make whomever was around meet his needs. It comes inherent inside of us, and we don't grow out of that. We just learn how to be more sneaky. But Jesus assumes we love ourselves. In Leviticus chapter 19, when this command first shows up, God assumes we love ourselves and says, the way that you love yourself, love your neighbor. With the same passion that you pursue your need for food, pursue that for the need of your neighbor. With the same degree of intensity, you move towards a need for happiness and a need for companionship and a need for freedom and a need for shelter. Move that way towards the need of your neighbor, even if it means sacrifice, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus says is this. Our self-seeking should be the standard for our self-giving. 
Our self-seeking should be the standard for our self-giving. The degree to which we seek things for ourselves should become the measuring stick for that which we give away to our neighbors so that we can meet their needs. Which raises a really important question, doesn't it? I mean, if this is what Jesus has called us to, to make a sacrificial movement towards the need of someone else, at the same level that we would move to meet our own needs, I've got a question, I hope you do too, and that is, who exactly do I have to do that for? Because just on its face, just at its outset, that is a really radical command, is it not? And if it is as broad as it seems like it is on its face, what God is calling us to, what Jesus is calling us to as people who would follow hard after him is a radical way of living that is by definition not comfortable, not easy, not just nice. He's calling us to sacrifice ourselves, to move towards the needs of somebody else. And I got a question, who exactly do I have to do that for? Because that's a pretty big ticket. Well, if you've got that question too, you've got to come back next week because Jesus won't answer the question until then. But before we answer that question, I want to look at this command one more time and take just a step back. Look at it in its context because what this command that Jesus gives reveals is something that is near and dear to the heart of God. This command to love your neighbor as yourself shows up in Leviticus chapter 19, but it actually shows up way, way earlier than that. See, when you look at the scripture as a whole, what you find is that God has always been in the business of revealing himself to the rest of the world through people like you and I. And it started not in Leviticus chapter 19, way back in Genesis chapter 1 where God creates man and woman and he puts them in a garden and he says, these I have made in my image. We've talked about this before, but to understand what in my image means, you don't have to look any further than CNN or Fox News because it's still a tradition today for kings and rulers in the Middle East. When they take power, they paint pictures and they create statues and they put them in every single city so that everybody that sees them will know who is in charge. And they'll understand just a little bit more about what that person looks like. That's why when you watch these governments being overthrown and you see people dancing on the heads of a statue, it's far more symbolic than we give it credit to be because those are representations. They are in the king's image. They represent his authority and his power and his likeness. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when God says, I've created mankind in my image, what he's saying is I've put a whole bunch of people out there to show the rest of the world who the authority is and to show what he's like. And from Genesis chapter 1, God gives us the responsibility of reflecting who he is to the rest of the world. Now, obviously, we've tarnished that image. We've messed it up, but that doesn't take away the responsibility. Because God goes to fallen people like Noah and reiterates the command. And for Abraham, he calls Abraham and says, all of your descendants should be a blessing for all of the rest of the world so that they'll see who I am. With Moses, God gives 613 commands a comprehensive perspective of what God is like and what righteousness looks like. And he says, obey these so that all the rest of the world will see. 613 commands. Now, have you ever asked this question? If you read through Leviticus and you see exactly some of those commands, you think, why in the world does God care about the style of the tassels on somebody's garment? Well, it's really simple. 
because God had given them a moral law. And when they lived out that moral law in front of other people, he wanted it to be patently obvious exactly which God they served so that when they lived out this moral law in front of the Hittites, when they lived out this law in front of the Canaanites, that the Canaanites would see that they're different and their life is compelling and they would know instinctively that these were God followers of the God of Israel because of the tassels on their garment. God has always been in the business of revealing himself to the rest of the world through people like you and me, all the way to the point that he stands at a sermon on the mount and says that you and I should be like cities on a hill, like lights that can be seen for all. Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech, did beg through us be reconciled to God on his behalf. God has always been in the business of revealing himself to the rest of the world. And what do we know about God? We know that God defines what love is. And you and I, more than Adam, more than Noah, more than Abraham, more than Moses, more than Solomon, more than David, more than Obadiah and Nehemiah and all of the other prophets, have a clearer picture of exactly who God is and what God's up to because we've been recipients of the greatest gift ever, the love of God. What God says to us is that we ought to be people who reflect that to the rest of the world, not out of fear not out of guilt, but out of response for what an extravagant gift we've been given. God has always been about revealing himself to the rest of the world through people. And so the command to love your neighbor as yourself is a command that's near to the heart of God himself. So what does it mean? A couple of things. First, the command to love your neighbor as yourself means that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ was never meant to stay personal. The command to love your neighbor as yourself means a personal relationship with Jesus Christ was never meant to stay personal. God has not left us on this earth to kill time while we wait to go to heaven. God hasn't left us on this earth because he doesn't know what to do with us yet. He's left us on this earth with a purpose and he tells us what the purpose is back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, to be people, men and women, who reveal more about who he is to a world that is watching. Personal relationship with Jesus was never intended to stay personal. Now, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you haven't experienced true love. That's what the Bible says. If you've never been a person who understood what Jesus Christ did for you, you have never experienced true love on your behalf, only some type of a tarnished image that someone else maybe showed you. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I hope that you will not walk through another door without having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because there is no other way to have life, there is no other way to have hope, and there is no other way to experience true love than to understand that God, while you were still a sinner, sent Jesus Christ to die for you and gives you eternal life simply by faith. But I hope if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and take that gift from him, you will realize that when you walk out this door, his intention was never, ever that your personal relationship with him would stay personal. If that's what you felt like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is all about, you have missed the point. 
God has not called our personal relationship with him to be something that we just keep to ourselves. He's called us to make a sacrificial movement towards the needs of someone else at the same standard to which we seek to meet those needs in our own life. God never intended that our personal relationship with Jesus Christ would stay personal. And the second thing that it means, command to love our neighbor as ourself moves us from a come and get it mentality to a go and give it mentality. You cannot fulfill the great commandment simply as a consumer. God's intention was never that we would just show up a couple of times a week and consume religious goods and services and be good for the rest of the week. His heart was that you and I would go into a watching world and reflect him for every single person who would watch. That we have been the recipients of divine love, a love that we could have never ever uh, earned or deserved on our own. That's the definition of love. And it moves us from a come and get it mentality to a go and give it mentality. Where everywhere we are, every day, every time, every door, every part of us loves God with everything that we are and loves our neighbor making sacrificial movements towards their need. Why? Because God loved us. Every day, everywhere, every time, every door, every part of us ought to be God lovers to sacrificially moving towards the needs of our neighbor. That's the command of Jesus. I want to tell you a couple of stories. The first story is about a guy named Mitch. We met Mitch uh, just a few weeks ago uh, up near TCU. He's a freshman at TCU and is... um, enjoying a whole lot of the freedom that being a freshman in college away from mom and dad means. Uh, He's having a great time. He's a great kid. Uh, Mitch grew up in a situation where uh, he had a mom and dad that loved him a whole lot. But mom and dad were never really very engaged in spiritual things. Uh, They never talked to him. They never took him to church. They never talked about spiritual things. He doesn't really even know what they believe about spiritual things. He, He knows that he had a couple of friends in college or in high school that talked a whole lot about Jesus but uh, didn't talk a whole lot to him about Jesus. And so he doesn't even really know what they stand for. He's not opposed to spirituality. He's not opposed to Christianity. When he found out we were talking to him from a church, he was totally open to talk to us and tell us a story and even let us take his picture. We also met Jen kind of the same day. Jen is a, a neat person. She's got some spiritual background. In fact, for a little while, she went to church on a pretty regular basis. Uh, she was dating a guy who that was a priority for him. And usually she said, she, if she's honest, it was a little more about going to church with him than it was uh, going to church for her to the point that when they broke up, she wasn't going to church, obviously, for obvious reasons with him any longer. And it just kind of fell off the radar and everything spiritual fell off the radar because you know how Sundays are and Saturdays are. I mean, it's busy and there's lots of stuff to take up time. But she's lonely She'd love to have some friends, and now that the guy's not in the picture anymore, she doesn't have so many people to talk to. And deep down inside of her, she revealed to us that she knows something's missing, but she doesn't really know what it is. She doesn't have any kind of spiritual connection at all. But again, not hostile. She was really kind to us and let us take her picture. Mike, uh, we met, he's a different story. Mike was a guy that uh, was really excited when he met us, but it had nothing to do with the fact that uh, we were from a church. He was excited because we were walking around with a professional photographer. You see, Mike's been without work for a while. You want to talk about a person with needs. Mike's a single guy reliant on a single income and no job. 
and he's struggling. And he needed a picture to go on his portfolio that he could take and hand out to other people, but he didn't have anybody that could take the picture. So when he met Jason, who was walking around with us, he was really fired up. Mike doesn't have any kind of spiritual interest. He's far too busy for that. He's got to find a job. He's not connected with people who love God with everything that's in them. He's just too busy. And maybe that'll come later. But he smiled when we let him take his picture. In fact, we met lots of people with similar stories. These three are just examples. And they're people that you run across every day. In fact, you would probably uh, maybe recognize Mitch or Jen or Mike. If you saw them at the grocery store, they shop right down the street. In fact, all three of them, as well as a whole host of the other people we met, live within a five-mile radius of where you sit this morning. All of them completely disconnected from anything spiritual. And oh, they have needs. In fact, when you walk out these doors this morning, you'll see Mitch and Jen and Mike. You'll see their faces with some other people that we ran into who have similar stories, different needs. They're engaged in a battle. And they're only representative. In fact, we did some research over the last several months. You want to hear a number that will make your eyes pop out? Within a five-mile radius of the place where you sit this morning, there are 40,000 people with no spiritual connection. Within a five-mile radius of all of us who sat this morning and sang of a God who is holy, holy, worthy, worthy, above all honor and praise to receive glory and honor and power, within a five-mile radius, there are 40,000 people who are unconnected spiritually, who are fighting a battle and desperately need people to love them. Why not us? Why not you and I who have been recipients of divine love? It's not like God was sitting in heaven lonely and had ulterior motives in sending his son for us. It's not as if God was uh, needing to invite some people in the party so he decided to make a way for us to go there. God is perfectly consistent and exists within himself. He doesn't have needs. But he loved us and he sacrificed for us because he loved us. With Mitch and with Jen and Mike and John and Amy and the whole host of other people we talked to, they desperately need somebody who will love them. Why not us? Well, there's some reasons that it's not us. In fact, I want to show you just a couple of reasons that maybe it hasn't been me recently. I'll show you on the video screen. Look at this video. Hi! It's your neighbors, Jim and Julina Sanders. How are you? Hey, hey, we totally know that you don't like going to church with us, so we're not even here to invite you to no. church, all right? We're not even here to tell you the four little happy hops to heaven. No. We're not even here to, to sell you fire insurance. Yeah. You know, from down there. You get that hell? Yeah. No, no, no. Hey, 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 hey. Honestly, honestly, yeah. what we want to do right now is we just want to serve you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. That's, a, that's a good thing. Oh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Okay, don't be afraid. Hold the phone, hold the 
know. No, we know that you don't get us. No. And why should you? You're a heathen. That's we get right. that, all right? Yeah. yeah. So what we want to do is just be here to understand you and to serve you in yeah. some ways. You know, what can we do for you? That's what Jesus asked all the time. Yeah. Now, we noticed on your mailbox that you had some balloons out there. Did someone die? Did someone die? Can we offer some condolences? No. Oh, you had a baby. Oh, oh. oh. Pink means joyfulness. I, I yeah, get it. I, get it. I Okay, but how about this? Can we wash something for you? You're yeah, probably tired. Maybe idea. we could wash your dishes. Yeah, or, or wash your car. W w wash, wash the lawn. Or wash the mailbox. mailbox. Wash the dog. Oh, we, the we dog. could even wash the washer for you. <laughs> not. Oh, he said not. I love putting that word at the end of a sentence. Oh, do it again. Do it again. I got nothing. Not. Oh. You said what I did. I put the comedy back around. That's a fine howdy do. I know. All right, well, we'll just leave the shoe here. We'll leave the brownies. I guess we'll go next door. Okay, can I can I talk more this time? Such a place, baby. Okay. What a friend we have in Jesus. Somehow I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Why don't we move towards the needs of our neighbors sacrificially? It's because we're afraid we're going to look like that. But Jesus hasn't called us to gain spiritual notches in our spiritual belt. He's not called us to treat people like trophies, to beat them over the head with our four-inch Bible. He hasn't called us to accost people with the gospel. He simply called us to love them, to make a self-sacrificial movement in the direction of their need to just take a step. And what I want to ask you to do this morning is to just take a step. There are 40,000 people in our neighborhood who are far from God. What would it look like for you to take a step towards loving them? We're going to define next week what neighbor means. But can we just at least agree that maybe it at least refers to the people that live around you? When you came in, you got a bulletin this morning and there's an insert with a magnet on the back of that insert uh, that asks the question, who are my neighbors? Here's what this picture represents. Pretend like the blue house is your house. What we know is that for all of us, there are probably six residences that are closest to us. For most of us, that's the people, the two houses across the street, the two houses next door, and the two houses behind us of people that live near us. And every single one of them has a story. Every single one of them's fighting a battle. Some of them are close to God. Some of them are far from God, but they're all close to us. And I want to ask you this week in the next seven days to just take a step. We're not trying to go from zero to 60. We're just trying to take a step and do it together. And here's what I want to ask you to do. You want to know the truth? The truth is it's really, really hard to love someone when you don't know their name. So what I want to ask you to do this week, every single one of us, is to take a step. Think about the six people that live closest to you and just learn their name. This has a magnet on the back. You can hang it on the refrigerator. You can, if you've got kids and you want to work through it with your kids and try to keep track of who your neighbors are, put it someplace that you will see it. It's hard to love somebody if you don't know their name. That's the only step that we're asking you to take. It's to learn their name and then with your family or by yourself, 
as you lay down to go to sleep at night, or as you open the door to your refrigerator, asking yourself, what would it look like to love God through this door? Say a quick prayer for the people that live next to you. Just asking God that in the right time, in the right way, you'd have the right opportunity to make a self-sacrificial step towards their need. That's all you're asking. Will you take that step with me this week? Why not us? With 40,000 people in a five-mile radius of where we sit, we ought to just know their names. And to ask God to give us a chance to take a step towards them. Some of these homes, you can already fill in all the blanks. You know the husband, you know the wife, you know the kids. You can start that process right now. In fact, we're going to do something just a little unique and enter into a time of prayer. Uh, Steve and Karen are going to come out and sing a song that reflects the attitude, at least of my heart, as I think about the six people that live next to me. If you would, just begin filling out that list if you can. And spend the next couple of moments as they sing, praying for the people that are near you, that God would give you in the right time, the right way, an ability to make a sacrificial step towards their need. Begin to pray for them by name if you can't. If you can't, just pray for them anonymously, that God would give you the chance to take a step as all of us take this step together in the next week. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to spend some time in prayer for our neighbors, that we would be people who love as we've been loved. Let's pray together. Father, uh, you have loved us with an unbelievable love, with the very love that defines love. We've been recipients of that. There are 40,000 people around us this morning who woke up and, and haven't received that love, or at least they are so far from it the way that they're currently living their lives. Lord, there are people that live near us who are worshiping in other places, and we celebrate that. We celebrate them. We pray that we would still love them. You haven't just called us to love our unbelieving neighbors. You've called us to love the people around us. So, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to make self-sacrificing steps towards the needs of the people who are around us. Help us to do that, Lord. We pray that you would guide us to, in the right time, in the right way, taking a step. And Lord, at this moment, we pray for those who live around us. We pray for ourselves that you'd give us the courage to take steps. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Doxology Bible Church podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. If you're ever in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to worship with you in person at one of our services. For more information on service times and location, visit doxology.church.